0: Is he the, uh... Mm-hmm. How much does he get paid to hang him?
1: $300 a man.
0: Has he got a name?
1: We the People.
0: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers.
0: We are at episode 91 and we're back to Cole's choice. What did you select this time?
1: I have chosen In Cold Blood from 1967, directed and adapted by Richard Brooks and starring Robert Blake, Scott Wilson, John Forsyth, lantern favorite Charles McGraw, and Paul Stewart, with cinematography from Conrad Hall. It's based on Truman Capote's groundbreaking nonfiction novel of the same name, and it chronicles a botched robbery that results in the brutal murder of a Kansas farm family and the ensuing pursuit capture and execution of the two men responsible. The specifics of the crime are this. In the early morning hours of November fifteenth, 1959, two ex-convicts, Dick Hickok, played here by Scott Wilson, and Perry Smith, played here by Robert Blake, showed up at the home of the Clutter family, a fairly well-off farming family that lived in Holcomb, Kansas. The plan was to rob the family safe and then abscond to Mexico. The problem was, the safe did not exist. They were given bad information. They murdered the family, and in the end their perfect score amounted to a portable radio, some binoculars, and about $40 in cash. In a strange twist of fate, we are actually recording this on a cold November night on the exact date that the crime occurred 59 years ago.
0: The murder victims were husband and father, Herb Clutter, his wife, Bonnie, and two of their children, Kenyon and Nancy.
1: Now, I'm much more the true crime aficionado in the family. When you approach it, you generally favor heists, embezzlers, white-collar crime, that sort of thing. How do you feel about covering this, a subject in which the crime is such a violent crime?
0: I'm also a true crime fan, though, as you mentioned, probably slightly less than you. I grew up knowing about this crime. I read the book when I was younger. I've read it again since then, and I've seen the film several times. It's a fascinating story. It's horrific. It's violent, as you mentioned. We'll get into the particulars of that and what makes it so horrific, what makes the killers themselves so horrifying. And I find, in general, that the reason I tend to stay away or need to step away from more violent stories sometimes is that I have a very hard time reconciling with the idea of a motiveless crime or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so chaos and uncertainty are terrifying concepts for me. You can hear me expound upon this at length in our Smile Jenny You're Dead episode.
1: And I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode as well. We talked about it some. Well, I was thinking about how to describe the feeling I have about it, and whether or not I would say I was excited to cover this. I would say yes, I am excited. I would describe it that way, because it was such a galvanizing experience, but with the qualifications about not glamorizing the crime and the criminals that always come when you talk about a subject like this. That being said, the film is a favorite, a desert island choice for me, maybe top 20 of all time because it was a true watershed moment for me seeing this the first time. It's such a landmark in how frank and blunt it is. And it's the first true crime film I recall seeing along with Helter Skelter. The tate Bianca murders were more sensational crimes, but I think I felt this one more deeply, and some of that you can probably chalk up to geography.
0: I feel very similarly to the film and the book, but not for the same reasons as you.
1: Hollywood had the allure, but Holcomb, Kansas is a town not unlike where I grew up. The flatness, those immense gray skies, the co-op grain elevators that you see, my great-grandfather worked in one of those. So I know from experience that this is the kind of town you would know something was wrong with this level of activity. Two police cars speeding down the main street that had one stoplight flashing red in all directions, that means something dreadful has happened. And it was still true when i was growing up and first became aware of this movie people don't lock their doors we didn't when i was a kid we certainly didn't and that ended up at least once with strangers being in our house fortunately it wasn't anything sinister one night not long after we moved into a new house i woke up to find a man in my room he apparently had a thing going on with a woman that lived there before and that had occupied what is now my bedroom and he hadn't gotten word that she had moved yet, somehow. So he snuck into what he still thought was her room, and was just as surprised as I was to find me there. But if it gives you any idea of how trusting we were in that town, that happened because the way our house was laid out meant my bedroom had two doors, one normal door into the rest of the house, just like everybody has, and a second door that opened directly to the outside. We did start locking that one afterwards, just in case.
0: This is not my physical terrain. Even though I have passed these roads because I've been cross-country so many times, and their family doesn't necessarily resemble mine, but it still affects me very deeply. I know what it's like to know in your heart that something is wrong if you're going to pick someone up for church or school or work and they're not there.
1: Well, let's dive into the movie proper here. The score, it gets your attention right away. It's clearly ahead of its time. It has a tinge of the standard noirish procedural score at first, but as it evolves throughout the film, it goes off in directions that are increasingly more complicated and dissonant and sophisticated. I really like all the surprises that it throws our way, juxtaposing and sometimes even overlaying musical ideas.
0: The first almost five minutes of the film are dominated by music, at least it feels like that, setting the tone. And the score itself is composed and arranged and conducted by the great of all time, Quincy Jones. You mentioned how unexpected it is, how many amazing choices are made. I want to talk about the bass for a moment, played at least in part by the great session musician Carol Kaye. And if you've seen The Wrecking Crew, you know who Carol is. There's a great description of this score, and especially the bass, that it is as if it's escaping from the rest of the ensemble and taking over. That it has an almost jolly feeling to it, but is still hapless and nervous. I like the word nervous here. I think the most interesting tidbit of this is that Truman Capote tried to get Quincy Jones kicked off the film. And of course, it was Richard Brooks who put the kibosh on that with a four-letter word.
1: But, with two Ts.
0: Close. Basically, to keep it clean, he told Truman Capote to go to hell.
1: Nervous is a fantastic way to describe it. One of the things that it made me think of, many years ago, Jeff Tweedy once described playing with drummer Mike Heidorn and Uncle Tupelo as playing along with shoes in a clothes dryer. Now, he meant that affectionately, if not exactly entirely as a compliment. And if you're an Uncle Tupelo fan, you know exactly what he meant. Those stop-start rhythms, those unconventional patterns that become second nature to you after a while. This score makes me feel a little bit of that. Not rhythmically, necessarily, but intellectually. I can't always guess where it's going to go. But the push and pull of it, when it's melodic, when it's grating, the way it works hand-in-hand with the sound design, When music is conspicuously absent altogether, it all makes perfect sense, ultimately.
0: And when I watch it now, how amazing it is to realize there's a completely different score for the family than for the killers.
1: I know you're partial to Thriller, but I'm going to go on record here and say that this, along with the Sanford and Son theme song, is Quincy Jones' best work ever. To accompany this music, the opening visuals that we have are so dark. There is so much literal darkness in the film, what seems like infinite blackness in some places. The opening shot of those bus headlights in the distance with nothing else visible for what seems like miles. Perry's boot sole in that Charles Skiro lighting on the bus. It's a very noir movie in a lot of ways, especially in the sections revolving around the criminals and especially the crime itself, which is lit with little more than flashlights in some places. But, scattered among all that darkness, you have scenes verging on documentary with their verisimilitude, their lighting, their shooting style. You could almost make the argument that Richard Brooks and Conrad Hall pioneered the documentary noir the same way that Capote pioneered the nonfiction novel.
0: I want to talk about Conrad Hall here for just a moment. He had worked with Richard Brooks before on The Professionals from 1966. And I think that his previous work in The Outer Limits for so many years really is reflected here. Those uncanny techniques brought to bear in this more documentary noir style, as you mentioned. This ability for shooting in practical darkness. The lens flares, especially from car headlights that are so effective. The zoom work. He worked together with Richard Brooks several times after this. And I'm also thinking about two separate projects that he did, Cool Hand Luke and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so I'm wondering, too, if it strikes you that he had a real flair for working in outdoor America.
1: No pun intended. Right, sorry. I don't necessarily associate Conrad Hall with sweeping vistas the way I might some other cinematographers. I think the examples you cite, those exteriors, This crisp black and white, this documentary style that he's good at, shooting for television, shooting those grubby, claustrophobic interiors that are sickly colored for Fat City. All of that suggests to me that he had an incredibly broad skill set and could shoot anything and make it look exactly the way you wanted.
0: I mean, case in point, Black Widow from 1987. (laughs) And I'm also not joking, but anyway...
1: But I do get, I think, what you're trying to say, and that's what I was referring to earlier when I get a true sense of the geography. It may not be the most picturesque thing, but he certainly gives you the essence of where you are with whatever he's doing. Now you briefly talked about how in the beginning, the first five minutes or so, we're given very little dialogue, mostly music, but I feel like we're given a lot about these characters. As we're introduced to them, if we don't know anything about what's coming, or maybe even if we do, these opening scenes generate some sympathy for these two men. Dick is obviously a doting son with a sick father. Perry is spooked by nuns at the bus station, so you can infer perhaps he suffered some abuse. Little details like the baby shoes on Dick's rearview mirror, and then when the dialogue starts... It's clear that Perry seems to want to choose the right path, and he's looking for any reason to do so in the beginning. He even calls the prison chaplain, who pleads with him, whatever you do, don't cross the river into Kansas. It's almost as if Perry already knows how this will end. And when you watch this, this vibe that Perry is giving off, this doom-laden conversation with the chaplain... Do you get that feeling because Perry is so well acquainted with his own weaknesses? Or does he perceive it as something external that he has no control over?
0: I think back to that first moment that we see of him, and I look at him as a boy in fancy boots with a guitar. He spent all of his money, the money that matters, on the things that he finds important. But he wasn't a boy at this point. Perry Smith was 31 at the time of these murders. Robert Blake was 34 playing him. He had already been through the military in Korea, where he had a lot of jail time during that period. He had a non-arguably horrific childhood. He was already disfigured, in pain constantly. And so I think it might be a bit of both of those. His fatalism plus knowing himself And the experience to see that really he had nowhere to go beyond his dreams. Dick Hickok was 28 at the time. Scott Wilson was just a baby at 25 playing him.
1: It was only Scott Wilson's second movie appearance ever. He was just in In the Heat of the Night right before this.
0: And it was Sidney Poitier who actually suggested to Richard Brooks that he use Scott Wilson. Great choice. Dick at this point already had a history of petty crimes. He had also that disfiguring car accident. And so when I see him with his father, I absolutely believe that he's devoted and he is so angry at the way that they live.
1: So something that we see more than once, a theme that crops up again and again, it basically boils down to never being able to accept personal responsibility. We can argue over how they came to be that way, but that is who they are.
0: And the last thing that occurs to me about Dick here before we move on is that for everyone, he has a smooth line. Whether it's his dad or Perry or a salesperson, he knows how to be charming.
1: It's true, and he's charmed Perry into this plan, their perfect score, which is already underway when he picks him up here at the bus station. That plan is in motion 400 miles away, and the clutters don't even know. They're occupied with things that seem very important at the time. Aaron's obligations with family and friends, that solemn moment, quote-unquote, of renewing his life insurance policy. There are perhaps no victims in the world of true crime that I know of that make me more sad than the Clutter family. I don't know how you feel about this.
0: Absolutely, and I almost don't want to get bogged down in that here because they'll probably just start crying. They were a family. Who loved each other. Herb and Bonnie had more children who survived. Kenyon and Nancy were kids. There's no precociousness here, even with that moment of Herb catching Kenyon having a smoke on the sly.
1: I'm glad you bring that scene up because right at the top here, it hits me really hard. It's such a small touch, but there's so much potential story in it. Kenyon doesn't want the family to see. Why? Does he feel an obligation to maintain the veneer of being the good son? Herb catches him. He obviously knows what's happening and even gently ribs him about it, but doesn't make a big deal out of it. So maybe Herb was in the same exact position as the son at one point, or maybe he never smoked in his life, but he knows that Bonnie is having health struggles of her own, mental and physical, which is something that there's been conjecture about so he wouldn't rat out the kid so as not to add further stress to her life. But you see what I mean. In this one tiny detail, there are countless things that let you feel and infer more story and understand that they were real human beings and they had good intentions, bad habits, grace, humor, and love for one another.
0: Mentioning Bonnie here for a moment, I like the way that Brooks has decided to suggest that, her history of possibly this sickliness, she sleeps in a separate bedroom, and when she's woken up, she doesn't immediately get out of bed to start making everyone breakfast, which is what I would assume would be happening. And so that speaks volumes. And then later, in the very crucial moments that mark the end of their lives, there's an embrace that also speaks volumes.
1: When you look at Brooks' filmography, there's obviously a real humanist bent to it all. The Blackboard Jungle, Elmer Gantry, looking for Mr. Goodbar, he was a keen observer of people, and that same sensitivity that enabled him to make the clutters so relatable, it works both ways. The killers benefit from that as well. He is very skilled at drawing complete characters, so we may not understand the acts that these men commit, but... We do know quite a bit about who they are generally, and specifically how they're distinct from one another. You referred to your initial impressions of Perry. He's often childish. He even looks more like a traditional delinquent, even though he's 31 years old.
0: The motorcycle jacket, that elephant's trunk hairstyle.
1: And so he sticks out in a number of ways, including his physical stature. He's a guy that witnesses would remember, I feel like, where Dick may not be. He's also not very pragmatic. He's prone to reverie, delusions of grandeur, flights of fancy like that map to the lost treasure of Captain Cortez, fantasies of stardom, or that imaginary yellow bird that righted the wrongs that he suffered. On the other hand, Dick is immature, but in a less emotionally stunted way is the best way I can think of to describe it. He's cynical. He has no impulse control. He talks a big game. He's vulgar, which I think was especially shocking to moviegoers in 1967. For instance, I've since seen an earlier example, but at the time, I had not seen The Finger as an obscene gesture on screen in a movie that predated this, had you?
0: Definitely not, and I think there's a tendency to think about films of this period, or set in this period, as an artifact. Whereas everyone comes to life in this as if they're in and of the present,
1: can you guess what the very first example of it was, or at least the oldest example that I have since found,
0: of showing giving the finger? Yeah, gosh. Um. Okay. Give me give me a year or time period. 1928.
1: Lillian Gish. <laughs> that would be extremely shocking, but that wasn't it. Harold Lloyd does it in Speedy from 1928, and he gives himself the finger in a funhouse mirror. Which somehow, even though it's four decades earlier, still doesn't seem as shocking as seeing it in in Cold Blood.
0: Totally agree, though it doesn't surprise me completely. I always think of Harold Lloyd as probably being kind of a filthy guy. (laughs) I guess it must be the glasses that makes me think that.
1: Now, are you somehow suggesting that Harold Lloyd is harboring some sort of secret darkness a la Dick Hickok?
0: Gosh, I hope not. I think Dick is much worse in the comparison of the two.
1: Well, the one gesture aside, Dick certainly did things that Harold Lloyd never attempted on screen, or even suggested. Even more than the obscene gesture, how shocking was it for a vanilla audience, which I assume was almost everyone then, to confront the idea that Dick would have no qualms about having sex in front of Perry?
0: I always forget about that one, and that is a huge deal. And there are those verbal vulgarities. Classy pussy. I mean, that's insane for 1967. And in a moment here, when he's talking about this perfect score that they're going to have, he says, we'll blast hair all over them walls. And the one that comes up much later when he tells Perry to quit jacking off. It's startling to hear him say that now.
1: This aspect of it is one of those things that makes me really feel like it was a wise choice on Brooks's part to insist on sticking with two relative unknowns for these roles. Because we come away with impressions that are dictated by the material, free of the baggage that might have come with bigger names that might have skewed that perception.
0: Now, Scott Wilson just unfortunately passed away last month. And I don't know why this performance doesn't get talked about more often. Maybe it does.
1: I don't think so. I don't see it in cinephile circles even. Maybe actually it's more prominent in horror circles these days, because towards the end of his life, that's what he was making more of.
0: I think about this alongside with his performance in Monster, and those are two things for the ages. He was a revelation to me in this, much more so than Robert Blake. And that's not knocking Robert Blake's performance. Scott Wilson just has something else. And maybe it's the character of Dick. Maybe Dick is just a more fascinating character
1: to me. Well, that's interesting because most people fix on Perry. Capote did for sure. What is it specifically about Dick that draws you to him rather than the other direction?
0: I think it's an element of that charm how he could have used that in a different way. And it makes sense when you learn about his background, the women he got involved with, the children that he fathered, and his own father's insistence on how he was a good boy.
1: What you say about the father, though, has parallels with Perry, too, and I think that's interesting. Both of the fathers, these acorns don't fall far from the tree. Perry's father is obviously a dreamer and has imparted that to his son. Dick's father is obviously broken, but in ways that don't seem as dangerous, without the proper catalyst, and he's passed that on to his son.
0: It does strike me that, even with the character of Nancy, that this is a film about fathers and sons. I think it's also that Dick is essentially the architect of this ridiculous plan, And even without this information, which I think is debatable how much he even believed that to be the case, because I think he fully went into this with the intention of murdering these people.
1: That one I don't know about. I don't think this happens without Perry. I think, like I said, Dick talks a big game and there's something that clues me into that right here, but we'll get to that. I do completely agree with you about one aspect of this as damaged as he is. Dick is very adept at certain things, at least in this limited capacity. His contribution to this enterprise is not violence, I don't think. It's that innate ability to read people and make that work to their advantage.
0: That's what I was just about to say. I completely agree. He is maybe not the more violent here, though, again, that's debatable, thought versus deed. But he is the manipulator. He is the one who chose Perry, and that was for a reason always to achieve his own ends.
1: And Dick isn't without insight, either. At one point, he laments that there are two kinds of laws, one for the rich, one for the poor. He's certainly not wrong. We see that play out every day in the court systems. He does have a line for everyone. But I don't know if the one person that needs to buy this line of patter does. When he's still talking this big game, going on about leaving no witnesses, is Perry skeptical of Dick? What's that look that he gives him? Because he very definitely suggests something. Is it disbelief? Distrust? Apathy? Something else?
0: I guess it comes down to that neither of them are passive, even though Perry might seem like it at certain points. He, of course, also has his own motives. And so, surprise, we can't trust two sociopaths.
1: Well, Dick has read Perry right, too. I got you figured for a natural-born killer, he says. And once again, Dick's not wrong. We may disagree slightly on how each one ultimately contributes to this grisly end, but in the worst way possible, they do make perfect partners. Well, all of this takes place as they are on their way to the clutter house, and we find ourselves sitting in the car with them outside 2 a.m. on the fateful evening. now prior to the crime, Perry has flashbacks of his childhood and his parents.
0: Perry's hallucinations, for lack of a better word, his dreams, are one of the two big contributions that I think Brooks brought to the adaptation of the novel into his screenplay. The other being the character of Jensen, the journalist whom we'll meet later.
1: Brooks did make the story a little more linear compared to Capote's source material, but there are still a handful of these elements that move us back and forth in time. I like the way that the narrative is slightly fractured in accordance with Perry's episodes of dissociation. And Brooks handles all of this flawlessly. There is so much precision in the structure and these angles and setups. You would think the Coen brothers storyboarded this thing.
0: There's a scene a few moments before this when they're buying their equipment in this hardware store. That camera is so alive and completely fluid, it's really interesting without being handheld.
1: I couldn't find any evidence that Brooks storyboarded this at all, but basically it's just that the book is so expressive and detailed that there is your blueprint. Visually and in every other technical aspect, it's just consummate storytelling. He
0: thought of himself first and foremost as a storyteller, right?
1: So much so that the epitaph on his gravestone says, first comes the word, if that gives you any indication.
0: And of course, we've already mentioned several times that he adapted this work. He wrote the screenplay. There are definitely fans of the book who criticize the film and its approach to what they see as humanizing the murderers, turning the clutters into one-dimensional characters.
1: Which I heartily disagree with.
0: I disagree with both of those things. Number one, the idea that the book doesn't humanize the murderer somehow. And I absolutely see the Clutters as fully realized characters, even though their screen time is, of course, so much less. They were not necessarily the point. Their phantom money was the point. We talked about those essential touches that Brooks has brought here that makes us feel them feel their deaths, mourn for them. And I think also it is that structure that Brooks has brought here, along with the amazing editing work. And that editor was Peter Zinner, by the way. He worked for decades upon decades, including The Godfather. Also all the way back to Singing in the Rain, by the way. So they've used this cross-cutting between the killers and the clutters to make me feel like they're in the same universe and that they're coming together is a physical inevitability. And that's all the way through Perry hearing the train and Nancy hearing the same train, we
1: realize. I think it's worth noting that Brooks and Hall were not filmmakers first. They came from the world of journalism in the first place. Hall much less successfully than Richard Brooks, but they did not start out as director and cinematographer. So they bring a different experience to bear on it, and I think it makes them really well equipped to handle this material.
0: Peter Zenner as well, he started out as a sound effects editor back in the 40s. Singing in the Rain, he was actually the music editor on that. And so I think there couldn't be anyone better equipped to work with this film editing and this score editing to put those two things together. Like I mentioned, that train sound.
1: The word you use there, inevitable, is the perfect word. And I would also say, in addition to that, it's lean, efficient, and dreadful. We see the daughter saying her prayers. Perry wants to leave before it's too late. Cut to the next morning and the doorbell ringing. Nancy's friend and her parents calling on them discovering the crime. So Act One is over, and the procedural begins, and this investigation will carry on as Perry and Dick head south to Mexico.
0: It's the Kansas Bureau of Investigation that's brought in here. And I don't know about you, but this felt completely different than other procedural films.
1: It does for one major reason, which I will get to in a little bit, but why is it different for you?
0: These guys don't feel like Junior G-Men. They're not fascinating individuals. They're day, and to me that feels more modern and human. We've talked about Dick's language, but for any period, these guys speak realistically, pragmatically, cynically. And maybe it's also down to the simple way that John Forsyth is shot in this. A lot of it's fairly flat, the lighting's more flat here. He's often in profile, but it's not that Elliot Ness type of profile.
1: This is more of that documentary style, echoing something like The Maisel Salesman, almost.
0: And then there's that amazing composition later when Alvin Dewey, that's John Forsythe, is sitting in a chair, rocking himself back and forth in profile, while Jensen the journalist is framed in the doorway. It's so interesting to me.
1: There's not much evidence for them to collect, except that boot print in the blood. Now, have you actually seen... The Clutter crime scene photos?
0: I definitely have not sought those out.
1: Well, I won't get too grisly with it, but the boot print is not a separate entity like it's presented most of the time in the film. It's inches from Herb Clutter's body in the actual full photo, and when you see it, you just cannot divorce the two images. As blunt as the film was, it spared us that, at least. There are also two photos of Herb Clutter, one face down like you see in the film, which leaves you with the same general feeling as what you see in the movie. But then there's one after they turned him over, which is something else entirely. You referred a little bit to the journalist and the detective occupying the space together comfortably, which I think is really interesting. The police's relationship with the press in this thing is fascinating to me. It's portrayed as pretty symbiotic and ideal, almost. This axis of the lead investigator and the lead journalist, you see them working side by side a lot, not just in the house, but sharing an office space, even. And the journalist is clearly not a Truman Capote surrogate, but a Richard Brooks surrogate.
0: I mentioned earlier that was totally Brooks' invention. And Capote didn't like this character. He felt like he acted as a Greek chorus, which I don't really think is a bad thing necessarily.
1: I might argue it's not so much a Greek chorus as a Brooks chorus. He's saying exactly what Richard Brooks wants us to hear.
0: I personally think Truman Capote was just pissed off because (laughs) he wasn't in the film. I really think he harbored a desire to see himself realized that way. But maybe I'm not giving him enough credit.
1: What, you think Truman Capote would seek out the limelight? Oh, crazy talk. With this Jensen character, though, we do see there's that humanism again. And he is using him unmistakably to get his viewpoint across. Not the last time that it'll happen in the film, in fact. But I think right here, he may be giving Brooks' thesis statement. Boiling it down to the most basic elements and what's at stake. What forces are at war here? A violent Unknown force destroys a decent, ordinary family. Something that everyone can easily recognize this is something to be terrified of.
0: And I like how the police here are angry about this. It's a stupid, senseless crime, as they say. And thinking again about the difference here of the portrayal of law enforcement as opposed to other films, even other noir, these people aren't turning over tables, pounding their fists waving guns around, they're smarter than that, and they're also more realistic than that.
1: There's a really interesting episode later, in which Forsyth lays out the cycle of how the press treats these cases. And he's doing that as he is touring the crime scene, the basement, yet again with this reporter. Now, This relationship may be the one thing in the film that I'm a little skeptical of. Brooks inserting himself this way maybe makes him too close to see this, but it seems a little too cozy a relationship for the police and the press to have. How did that strike you?
0: I agree. It did always seem odd, even though, of course, Truman Capote gained an incredible amount of access to the people involved. But here, Jensen talks about that he's a freelance, essentially, so he's not specifically attached to a paper. So then why give him this entree.
1: I said earlier that I think part of this conversation is Brooks's thesis statement about this. What I am not skeptical about is what is essentially the thesis statement of the film for me, when Forsyth says, murder's no mystery, only motive. This sort of sums up how I have come to feel about man's inhumanity to man after all these years. I always, always hope for better from people, But to be surprised by the depravity that we are capable of at this point in human history is naive and dangerous. These things happen literally every day. If you give me 10 minutes, I could pull up five articles from just the last two weeks that would make you question whether or not you ever want to go outside of your home again. And I can do that as far back into the past or forward into the future as you want to go. Just as an example, the FBI's crime clock for 2017, calculated that a violent crime occurred in the U.S. every 24 seconds last year, a murder every 30 minutes, a rape every 4 minutes, a robbery every 2 minutes, an aggravated assault every 39 seconds. This thing the detective says later about a radio, some binoculars, and $40 in cash, implying that you take a look on any crowded street and you'll find someone willing to do this or something similar, That's not just world-weary, bitter cynicism. The numbers bear this out. In this world we live in today, just the mass shooting statistics and frequency are enough. Never mind when you start to get into the more lurid and sensational cases with details that are so gruesome that they go beyond what you can even comprehend. When you add up the sheer volume of these things, you start to realize it's simply ridiculous to ever say, oh, I never thought something like that could happen. Now to be clear, it's not bad to want better of the world, I definitely do, but it is also irresponsible to suggest that there aren't dark places everywhere. To say something like, what's this world coming to, that is a question only a child should ask. We are not coming to anything. The statistics show we've been here all along. I'm not saying give in to it, but I am saying let's not kid ourselves about it, and that's a hard thing for people to face the full scope of. I would say nearly impossible for the average person. It's just too much. It makes me worry about, for instance, the effect it would have on you if we did start our true crime podcast.
0: As it is right now, I wish I had some essential oils that I could sniff (laughs) or put somewhere because I'm really starting to feel this, definitely.
1: Do you find those statistics surprising? Or maybe that's not even the right question. Do you find them comprehensible? Can you even wrap your mind around that?
0: Gosh, y- yes and no. I am the victim of a crime. I was stalked when I was much younger. So I'm a statistic, in essence. Last week, I guess whenever you're listening to this podcast, we had a mass shooting This one specifically affected me during my job because people involved were clients of mine. I started to think that names that I see on my screen could now be dead people, dead students. It was a tough week. I actually don't really want to go down this road anymore, if that's okay with you.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Brooks's approach to this idea. Fortunately for us, in terms of just having an accurate document, Brooks does not shy away from the truth. He actually goes to extraordinary lengths to portray all of this as accurately as possible. It is really another wise decision on his part. This actual shop where Hickok and Smith bought this suit and passed the bad check in Emporia, that's where they actually shot this scene. The actual salesman that made the sale, he's in the scene.
0: Actual townspeople are featured in the film. Nancy's horse, Babe, is there. Later on, the jurors that are in the jury box were the actual jurors.
1: Seven of the 12 of them, at least.
0: So clearly, Richard Brooks brought an attention to detail that far surpassed what others might have. He spent a huge amount of time researching this at the Mininger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, looking at how mentally ill and potentially homicidal prisoners were treated. And that also went for the cast as well. He instructed John Forsyth to meet with Alvin Dewey so he could study his mannerisms. And I think back to the use of the unknowns again, or relative unknowns, Robert Blake and Scott Wilson. Scott Wilson said he treated them as if they were two murderers he happened to have run across.
1: I know that Brooks was much rougher on Scott Wilson than he was on Robert Blake. And I don't know if that had to do with In the book, Perry is treated with more empathy than Dick is. If it's the fact that Robert Blake was a more experienced actor than Scott Wilson was, it could be any number of things. But you can really feel how that probably contributed even more to helping delineate the difference between these two men. The list of these things just goes on and on. You talked about the jurors, the courtroom, that's actually about 12 feet across that held the trial of the century. That's the actual courtroom. They filmed at the actual penitentiary. Most significant of all this stuff, though, they filmed the scenes with the Clutter family in the actual Clutter home.
0: I think that's the detail more than any other that really gets to me. He demanded that access and got it.
1: Can you imagine reenacting what happened in that basement in that basement?
0: I 100% cannot imagine that. And it definitely affected everyone involved.
1: The film just would not be the same without this location work. It's probably the first part of the film that resonated with me. I talked a little bit about this at the top. I grew up in these places, traveled these roads. In some cases, I have literally been there. That street in Olathe where the hotel was, I have driven down that very street. So these places are in my blood. I feel super confident after having gone to my fair share of town meetings in my hometown, Apache, Oklahoma, that I know how a town like Holcomb, Kansas would respond to an event like this. And Brooks gets all of those things right, perhaps even more than Capote got them right. And another thing that comes out of that, one thing I feel very sure of, is that a lot of people there didn't want this. It's one of the toughest questions of all when it comes to looking at this sort of thing. For study, for one, but especially when it comes to using it as entertainment in any way, what responsibility is there to the survivors? How much time and distance does it take before these things simply become history?
0: I find that impossible to answer.
1: Sure. Well, I wasn't expecting you to say three years, four months.
0: Okay, good. Thank you. Because we have the literal surviving family members to take into account, We've got students of psychology and law enforcement who might be able to learn something from this. And then honestly, it's interesting. It's compelling. No one has a responsibility to me to provide that as my entertainment. And yet I want to watch the movie again and again. I want to read the book again and again. I and many, many other people are fascinated by these kinds of
1: stories. Well, I'm sure you can guess where I land on this. I favor not shying away from it, obviously. Even if this were to happen to me, I'm telling you now, you have carte blanche to... And that's not a blank check. (laughs) (laughs) You have carte blanche to have my story told in whatever way, because I'm dead. I don't care. It does not matter. It does not affect me. The biggest part of that boils down to, I think, there's a larger responsibility to the truth regardless of the discomfort. And speaking of discomfort, Perry is not comfortable with Dick's lies where they concern him. You see this in his face when they're buying the suit. But he admires his skill as a grifter. As we watch this shopping spree in Emporia and beyond, when they're bouncing these checks all over the place, it always occurs to me that crime had to be so easy to get away with in years past. In retrospect, I am amazed anyone ever got caught before the advent of computers. I have long maintained, for the most part, only the absolute dumbest criminals ever get caught, and unfortunately for Perry and Dick, they don't have enough sense to stick to their plan in the long run. They make it to Mexico, but all of Perry's daydreaming is getting on Dick's nerves, he wants to go back to the States. Of the two, Perry is the relatively criminally smart one. He agrees to go back to Vegas, get the stuff he shipped from Mexico. But once they retrieve that, he wants to get gone and stay gone. Dick can't do it, and therefore the dragnet begins to close in.
0: It strikes me, and maybe that's the book talking, that it was over before it ever started.
1: Now, do you get that feeling because, like you say, the book, or in this case, as you're viewing, that thing that we talked about at the very beginning, Perry feels that way.
0: It's an interesting question. Maybe I can't divorce the two. Maybe I'm thinking about the procedural part as laid out in the book. Maybe I'm thinking about how we know that Dick can read people and yet he can't figure out that Floyd, the person who got him started on this scheme, was going to talk. But all of these attempts to get away could have been easier. They could have put the distance between them and could have been gone. And it doesn't happen. It's go forward, move backward the entire time.
1: We understand all that because we're spending a lot of time with these two men. I think it's probably kind of unusual, at least for a modern audience that's used to how these stories are told now, how little of the progress of the investigation that we actually see. They dole out minimal forensic details and speculation. It's the exact opposite of CSI, for instance. The handful of things that they tell us, Clutter's throat was cut before he was shot, speculating about this idea why make them comfortable, then kill them? It all suggests two people, which is later backed up by the footprints, but we literally get just enough to know that the investigation continues and is getting closer. Maybe the result of that work aspect of it being too boring to show?
0: I think more about the idea that this was, again, an inevitability. Them committing the crimes, them being caught for the crimes.
1: I would have liked to have seen more of that process, but I understand why they made the decision. As unfortunate a truth as it is, the killers, their movements, their motivations, those are what is most compelling about this story. The alchemy of circumstances and conditions that brought them to this and allowed them to do it is the mystery. Much more a why did they do it rather than a who done it, and it's a mystery that will never be solved. The police don't have the luxury, however, of putting off the who done it part. They have to solve this crime. Through a combination of Wells' informing, and this dogged everyday shoe leather police work, these two men are finally picked up in Las Vegas, and we see them separated for the interrogation. True to form they are a study in contrasts. In this small room, Perry can only turn away from detectives physically so many times until all he has left to do is turn inward as usual. Meanwhile, next door, Dick's bullshit charm doesn't hold for very long. He chain smokes here more than he ever did in The Exorcist 3.
0: He's also sweating hard.
1: They catch him in three mistakes. He finally capitulates in tears, gives up Perry as the one who was the mastermind and perpetrator of all this violence, and faints. It turns out, He is exactly what Perry thought he was, which I now think finally contextualizes that look that Perry gave him way back in the beginning when Dick was talking such a big game. He knew he was not made for this. It's stuff like this that I point to when I say I feel like Perry is much more responsible as the catalyst for this sort of thing. I get the impression from what you said earlier, you think this is more 50-50? You thought, at least in the beginning maybe, Dick was as capable of this as Perry is. I don't know if I'm reading you right or not, but I think this vindicates my position all along that if this was just Dick or Dick and someone else, this might not have even gotten off the ground. It's Perry's presence that guarantees that it plays out this way. Am I interpreting what you're saying correctly?
0: I think you are, and I'm, as usual, going back and forth a little bit. I do stick to my assertion that I think that Dick is the prime mover for this. I think he was looking for the score. This thing presented itself. He twisted it to fit his ends.
1: So you think, just to clarify, that if Dick walked into the clutter house completely by himself, just with a shotgun and a flashlight, he would have killed those people?
0: Not necessarily. Here's what I was about to say. (laughs) And I know I'm trying to put this together as I go. Even if... It was only in word and not deed because he says he's prepared to do this. It may still all come back to that bullshit line of talk that he has. I think he was ready. I think he had a larger propensity for crime in general than Perry did. I think Perry's was much more specific. I truly don't think if he had walked in there alone or with somebody else that he would have left without something happening even if it was somehow his own destruction. I don't see Perry putting together the plan in the same way. I think that he is the murderous cog in the wheel.
1: I think there's still one significant factor in favor of my argument that this is maybe 70 Perry, 30 Dick. And that's, look who actually tells us the story. Dick is telling the truth when he throws Perry under the bus. He's not lying about that. Dick doesn't want to go up for murder one. I honestly don't think Perry walked into that house planning on killing anyone. 50-50, a coin toss maybe, but I literally think that decision was made seconds before the act took place.
0: Perry is going to take us through the crime at long last, so we see how, at least we're told, it unfolded.
1: For the most part, I believe Perry's recounting of this evening, with a couple of reservations. In the discussion of this, though, I want to draw a very distinct line between him accurately accepting his participation in this act.
0: And this is Perry.
1: Right. Versus him actively accepting responsibility for the act. Two different ideas, but I'm really going to stick to my guns that I don't think, moments before he pulled that knife, that he 100% walked into that house knowing That they were the only two that were going to walk out alive. He snaps. He has a psychotic break, which I think a different set of circumstances might not have contributed to or caused that makes this play out potentially in a completely different way.
0: I think we could continue to argue about that endlessly. I think we could each point to different sections in this flashback. And maybe, at least for me, The impressions certain moments made on us. I think Perry knew the entire time that Floyd's story was a lie. Every piece of equipment they brought in, every piece of preparation, was all to the end of murder. Clearly, though, I am not a legal scholar and probably have a very tenuous understanding of the law. And I may not even be remembering the film correctly, so I could just be looking at these pieces of so-called evidence to bolster this opinion that I have, this impression that I have. So I'm going to stop with my rantings and lack of evidence. How about that?
1: Perry's recounting of the story actually keys in on, I think, what might be our problem in our differing interpretations, how amorphous this all is. Because he says explicitly, who knows where anything really begins? and claims that the whole crazy stunt had a life of its own and no one could stop it. As Perry is telling the story and the movie goes into flashback, we find ourselves back outside the clutter home on that fateful night.
0: We're actually in the car with Perry and Dick. We start out in the back seat, and it makes me feel like I'm complicit watching over their shoulders.
1: It's a claustrophobic environment, and notably that's underlined by the music ceasing to exist here. When we finally see them enter the house, there is no sound but the wind. It's such a desolate and hopeless sound. As the robbery commences, Perry catches on faster than Dick that there is no safe. In fact, I think you suggest Perry was sure of this before they even set foot in the house.
0: When he says reasonably, Floyd Wells lied to you, I mean, it seems like the most obvious thing.
1: Well, the plan does have a momentum of its own, and so Perry takes them into the basement. He separates the family. And this is another one of those particularly affecting moments. When you see the father's legs shaking from the strain of the way he's tied up and the fabric of his pajamas quivering, it's deeply unsettling. A similar realization is visited upon the father as Perry when he says, If all you want is money, why? Right before his mouth is taped over? These two moments together are such a gut punch, but especially this last one. I feel like that's the moment where this becomes completely inevitable. And both he and Perry know that this is only going to end one way.
0: It's then suggested, and this comes from the book, that Perry stops Dick from raping Nancy.
1: It's such an odd awareness that Perry has that he demonstrates in which he sees everything with clarity except himself. He fully grasps how absurd this situation is. And in his heart, he knows these people are not guilty of anything. And don't deserve what's going to happen to them. In fact, he specifically says to Dick, it's got nothing to do with them. And so the irony is beyond tragic when he says, I despise people who can't control themselves. There has to be a healthy amount of self-loathing couched in that exclamation, I think. Because the truth of the matter is, it is his lack of self-control that dooms everyone in the house. He is the only one with the power to make this potentially go a different way. But a switch has flipped inside him. And once this thing starts, it has to go all the way.
0: It's Nancy's section here that's the most affecting to me. Her turning her body away from him as he's raising the shotgun. Then the use of sound, music, or footsteps, or her speaking. And then there's nothing.
1: So we've spent a lot of time on who these men are, and we finally have dealt with what specifically happened that evening, the aftermath, now that they have been pursued and captured, gets a sort of perfunctory treatment. The last two settings that we find ourselves in, this courtroom and then later the prison, I think were not so much important to the story of Perry and Dick, but I think more important to Brooks. These are basically framed as a way to let his surrogate speak for him again. Specifically in the courtroom, asking... How can a perfectly sane man commit an absolutely crazy act? That's the big question, right? That's the thing that all of us who pore over this stuff really want to know.
0: That's why chaos is unacceptable and
1: horrifying. So we try to confine it at least all to one place where we can keep an eye on it. And in this case, that's the Lansing Penitentiary. We are on death row now. A warehouse with a scaffold waits for them as the legal machinery plays out.
0: I think it's striking here to think again about Dick and his personality. He just seems like all hot air at this point. It's Perry who's given more of a voice, explaining himself, expressing
1: his fears. During all of this, it's notable, I think, that Perry blames the lack of a psychiatrist at one point for how this turned out. Again, demonstrating awareness, but also a near pathological inability to take responsibility for himself. The appointed hour finally comes, and it is striking to me how they are both pathetic in their own ways. We've edged up to this question a couple of times already, but I'll just ask it straight out. Are these characters too sympathetic? Capote clearly had an affinity for them, at least Perry. During the film, Perry's not without his soul-searching, saying, there must be something wrong with us to be able to do what we did. They're each clearly broken men, and Perry's story, at least, suggests that his childhood had done irreparable harm to him, but how could that be his fault? Is this as big a gray area as it seems like?
0: Again, I could maybe not be giving Truman Capote enough credit, but I think that he felt sympathy and was able to express that to the extent that he could get a good story out of it. I think he recognized that these were still human beings and therein lies the tragedy. I don't feel sympathy for these characters. I do for their each terrible childhoods and upbringings, and also for the choices that they made. It doesn't make them any less terrible to try to comprehend or wonder what I would do.
1: Is there a little bit of that? A lot of people go through terrible childhoods, and not all of them turn out to be murderers built in there?
0: You know, generally, I don't feel that way. I'm also not always a, well, I pulled myself up by my bootstrap, so why can't you? I don't feel like that's a blanket explanation for every societal ill. But when you do introduce crime into it, and especially the crimes that they committed, that removes the sense of, well, okay, I can understand what they did, and I want to help them. That goes away.
1: It's a difficult proposition, as you know, that they are facing the end of their lives, During this monologue that Perry delivers about his father, as the rain pours down the window, he's photographed almost like he's a saint. And it's an affecting story. He's recalling genuine happiness, maybe the last instance of it that he ever knew. And that crumbled into failure. I was eating a biscuit is the thing he remembers. And that is such a great detail. It's a thing that a child would remember. And his father, I think, did intend to kill him. It's a huge morass of gray area as far as Perry's concerned. I hate him, and I love him, he says. Both of those things are simultaneously possible. So, to forgive and yet also condemn to death, how different is that? That's entirely possible as well, apparently. And it comes down to something that I think you were just obliquely referring to. The final tally is four innocent and two guilty people murdered, and next month, next year, the same thing will happen again. This last section also contains one of those things that when you hear it sticks with you for the rest of your life, at least in my case. This idea that the journalist puts forward that a psychiatrist said that together they made a third personality. This was the first time I remember being confronted with this idea, and I still think about it all the time. Does this idea hit you the same way, or is that just my true crime personality talking?
0: I think it's interesting that you say that because it makes me think about Leopold and Loeb, for example. But no, it didn't affect me in the same way that it did you. Maybe it's the only child thing. Maybe I never thought about having a partner in crime.
1: Well, it's astounding when you go back through the annals of crime and you see just how many prominent cases it's applicable to. Leopold and Loeb is a great example. You see tons of it in cinema. The Honeymoon Killers, for instance. It's just one of those ideas that once you're made aware of it, you see it in a lot more places than you expect it to. I really appreciate how this film is absolutely true all the way to the end, and I think this is best exemplified by one of the last things that Perry says. When they ask him if he has any last words, he says, I think maybe I'd like to apologize, but who to? It strikes me as maybe the most reasonable, rational thing that a remorseful person might say in that exact circumstance. He's not a monster. He's not an imbecile. Once again, we come back to Brooks's overarching question, How can a perfectly sane man commit an absolutely crazy act? Because that's what these officials are doing too. This ritual act of killing in the name of the state. And this ending is just a dagger in the heart. Perry's mask moving over his face and it's frantic and blank all at the same time. Then they spring the trap and there's that abrupt end. So all of that makes me focus on two ideas. It really does put me in the mind of one of these men performing this task. How invested are they in this? Is this just workaday like the detectives? Do they feel like they're playing a part in the dispensation of justice? Would they rather not be there at all? I know Brooks's stance. He was anti-death penalty, so you feel that undercurrent. At the very least, it seems like a futile gesture. The other thing it makes me think of is what that must have felt like to be in the theater in 1967, to be hit with this ending, and then almost immediately have the lights come up. There's no end credit sequence to speak of. Credits give you the time to process, to transition back into the non-movie realm, but this is almost instant. I need a lot longer to sit in the dark before I am ready to move from my seat after this.
0: I completely agree. Even watching on our couch is in a startling, abrupt end. His body falling through the door, the end. Lights are up. And then we're left just to look at each other and wonder what happened. Now, in real life, Perry took that opportunity to rail against the death penalty because journalists were present. And as you mentioned, Richard Brooks was completely against the death penalty. So why does he choose this film to adapt?
1: Before we get too far afield with that bigger question, I want to actually dig into something you just said that made me think of. If that is indeed what is said, and truth was so important, and Brooks was anti-death penalty, why take this poetic license to end on that more poignant note than a more strident note?
0: I think it might have come off as maybe too theatrical, Hmm. the way that he said it in the moment that he said it.
1: A little disingenuous and self-serving, too, maybe?
0: We might as an audience have thought, well, he couldn't have possibly have really said that.
1: Or if he did, it's only in his own best interests.
0: Because Richard Brooks clearly went for message pictures. And so with that choice to change what he said a bit, why would Brooks, who was so anti-death penalty, choose this specific material to adapt? I ask that because... For many people, these two murderers might be considered the poster children for the use of the death penalty. Irredeemable, terrible events. So these aren't quote-unquote easy murderers. These are difficult characters to reckon with. Or is that why he chose it? Because he didn't shy away from the difficult?
1: I think his choice of it could be attributed to two things in particular the journalism background, and obviously this is a rich vein for true storytelling, and the other part of that being the interesting place that he found himself as being in this transitional period between classic Hollywood and the new Hollywood that was on the horizon. There were all these influences coming in, the French New Wave, Cinema Verite. I think he saw in this something that had a lot of potential for the type of experimentation that he wanted to do. As message-driven as his pictures are, I do think, as a technician, as a craftsman, he was more ambitious than just, tell the story, give us the who, where, when, why, and how of it. And this project was one that he could clearly see afforded him the opportunity to satisfy both of those parts of himself.
0: I was thinking about you, as I was looking up more about Richard Brooks, it seems like you might identify with him.
1: Yes, definitely. (laughs) But before I explain why, I want to know what it is about him that made you think that.
0: Um, maybe the uh, ahem use of the word difficult. (laughs) And also loving and stimulating. Easy there. I do have a funny anecdote. I'm not saying that this is what made me think of you.
1: Sure, okay.
0: He directed one of our shared favorites, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to paraphrase him here when he was speaking with the cast and the crew before they got started. He said something along the lines of, you're all thinking, what creative contributions can I make to this picture to make it better? Stop right there. It's my movie. Everybody just shut up.
1: (laughs) Welcome to how the podcast works, everyone. Truly, no. You're right, though. This begins the long list of items of why I chose the film. I do identify with Brooks, based on what I know of him, at least. He was no-nonsense, a bit on the intense side, as you describe, he had a certain gravity. He was loved and hated, probably in equal measure, but you could never, ever question that he delivered results. Seems like he thought far enough ahead to have the answers to questions you didn't even know you had yet, and all of this allowed him to keep things under control it meant that this became as much his material as Capote's in some ways. I think his steadfastness maybe even made him a better custodian of it. I'm specifically thinking of that instance when Capote showed up on the set with an entourage to take photos, among other things, and Brooks shut it down. He would not allow Capote to sully this endeavor with what seemed like frivolous tourism. Other reasons why I chose it? I love the cold and the alienation. I know it seems odd to some people, but this is a feeling that I actively seek out. I find it comforting. Our friend Daisuke Beppu and I were just talking about Blast of Silence, for instance, and films that have cold and lonely endings. And this may be the very apex of that idea. Even just listening to Brooks talk about it, I feel it. When he was saying how there's nothing between Alaska and Kansas but a barbed wire fence. What an evocative image that is. In him describing how on the set, everyone began to talk in whispers when they are in the clutter home, and it puts my heart directly in the basement of that house on a cold and windy Kansas night at two in the morning. Obviously, you found him interesting. We watched a number of special features, and we've seen interviews and read extra material. You may not identify as closely with him as I do, but do you find him as compelling a figure when you hear him talk about these things?
0: Absolutely. His work as a novelist, then getting involved in films. How deeply he focused on his hatred for bigotry and racism. And I think he made a difference.
1: Other things that the film makes me think of that make it resonate so much with me. It made me face a very specific fact of life. This is just going to get some of us. There are always those questions of what could we have done to stop this? And in some cases and combinations, the answer, sadly, is nothing nothing could have stopped it. In other cases, the answer is any one of a dozen. A hundred things could have gone a different way that would have resulted in a different outcome. You think about the aftermath of the crime in this film, there were tons of places where this could have gotten even worse, where people narrowly missed meeting a bad end at their hands. So the film taught me the truth about what humanity is capable of, and it's just going to get some of us. Some of us as victims, and I think... An idea that may be even harder to swallow some of us as perpetrators. You might think that sounds impossible, but what do you think the percentages of murderers that intended for things to go that way when they woke up that day? I would guess it's probably pretty small, and the great majority of people who are in prison for that sort of thing can't believe where they ended up when things started off pretty normally when they woke up. As much as most of us might like to, we'll just never completely excise this capacity for mayhem and cruelty, I don't think. There will always be those people that are on the margins that are willing to go farther than you, that just don't care, and it forces me to confront that in myself, too. I know that Brooks was against the death penalty, and when I'm thinking rationally, I agree with him. Of course I don't want the state killing on my behalf. But if someone did something to you, or to Haley, and I was across the table from them, and they smirked at me, I can't guarantee what I would do in that moment. I know it wouldn't bring you back. I know it wouldn't restore me in any way whatsoever, but I don't think I could guarantee that person's safety, and that's as honest as I can be.
0: As I get older, I do come down on the side of personal vengeance (laughs) more so than state vengeance, but that's just me.
1: And finally, the biggest thing, contemporary films may have eclipsed this in terms of what they can and do show. Other films go harder, obviously. Other films go faster. To this day, though, no film of this kind, I think, is more true. That they cannot surpass. That truth never loses its ability to make a significant and powerful impression.
0: Something that you said a moment ago made me think about why I chose the recommendation that I did. People willing to go farther than you. My goal here is also that if I keep mentioning this film, you'll finally watch it.
1: <laughs> I promise, one of these days.
0: Yeah, one of these days. Anyway, I chose La Ceremonie, which I mentioned in last year's Ants in the Pants episode. It's from 1995, directed by Claude Chabrol, with Isabelle Hubert, Sandrine Bonaire, Jacqueline Bessette, and Jean-Pierre Cassel. A newly hired maid for a rich countryside family befriends a post office clerk, who encourages her to rebel against her employers. These are the people who are willing to go farther than you. It shows what happens when you give two people weapons to create destruction, and I'll let you decide if those weapons are each other. It's based on Ruth Rendell's novel A Judgment in Stone, which was also, I found out, adapted as a film with the great Rita Tushingham, which I know we both love her. That original story was loosely based on two French sisters who were convicted of murdering their employer's wife and daughter in the 30s. The film is great. Everyone in it is great. And I specifically chose it for this because it feels like less of a motiveless crime than killers constructing their own motive as they go.
1: Would you file this one under the the two people generated a third personality that let this happen?
0: I think that's a really interesting idea. And I hadn't thought of it until you said that. It seems like they both create something together that's worse than even their own worst impulses. And they do things that are terrible on their
1: own. Well, speaking of terrible things, my recommendation is Tower, from 2016, directed by Keith Maitland. It's an animated documentary that chronicles that day in 1966, when Charles Whitman barricaded himself in the clock tower on the campus of the University of Texas, and started shooting people. It's told from the point of view of several of the survivors and people involved in the ending of the siege. This is probably the other major crime I grew up being aware of. It was certainly an event that people point to as one of those things after which things were never the same. That tower is indelibly etched upon my imagination. Is that a regional thing? Was it the same for you being from Virginia slash Idaho?
0: I didn't hear about it until a bit later. I used to watch a lot of true crime things as a teen and it and I came upon it at that point. So it may be regional. It may also be the time period. I know lots more about Ted Bundy than I do about Charles Whitman, for example.
1: So more 80s and 60s. Well, we just went to campus to see Saving Brenton a couple of weeks ago. And I think about it every single time I set foot there. Like a lot of people, I'm sure. And I always will. I know it will never not come to mind. It's strange for me to think that there are countless kids there right now that have no idea about it, possibly. They live in the shadow of that thing all day long, walk that campus, go through that square, no idea. But at any rate, this film does a fantastic job at leaving it to the survivors to craft their history. And I think it is a vital document that makes you understand what it was like to be right there, right then.
0: So as usual, that's two great recommendations, La Ceremonie and Tower.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 91. If what we do here is valuable to you, and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore casts, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Hunter Wolf, Travis Trudell, Shelley Sampon, Drew Tavendale and the Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, the Front Porch Swingers podcast, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemarried, Grindhouse Dave, and Brian Sauer. I do want to give a special shout out this time around to our friend Keith Rich. He and his band Druids just came through town and stayed with us for a couple of days on the Texas leg of their tour, and it was great to get to finally sit down and share some meals and talk movies with him. You can keep up with everything they are doing at the band's website, druidsiowa.com, and I heartily recommend that you do. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you'll find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.